0: There are, in the Old Testament, a few passages that speak of the repentance of God, wherein God does something or threatens something, and then later he appears to change course and remove his punishment or his threat. Of course, this is impossible. The nature of the one God who created all and sustains all is perfection, In order for God to be the source of all things, God must possess within himself the fullness of existence. And this means that God cannot change, because change requires God to have had something which he now lacks, or to have lacked something which he now has. But God is infinite and perfect, never lacking anything, ever. God cannot change, let alone change his mind. God does not experience emotion. He is infinite and unending love, all the time, forever. And yet, right there in the Bible, it says that God repented and changed. The first lines of our first reading are like this. This. They read, Comfort, give comfort to my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her service is at an end, her guilt is expiated. Indeed, she has received from the hand of the Lord double for all her sins. This is, on its face, a divided passage. Jerusalem has been working in service, that is to say, in slavery, to expiate her guilt. It was not uncommon in the ancient world to have to go into slavery to pay a debt. Her master, the Lord, has indeed given her double the punishment that was due for her sins. And yet, now that same Lord wants to give her comfort, He wants to make her promises of salvation, of glad tidings and good news. The image of the Lord has switched from a cruel master to a tender shepherd who wants to gather the lambs in his arms and lead the ewes with care. Understood to the extreme, this passage makes God seem cruel and manipulative. So how do we explain this? Well, an historical overview helps. Our first reading comes from the end of the first section of the book of Isaiah, written in the 8th and 7th centuries B.C. Isaiah lived in the southern kingdom of Judah and watched as Assyria, the emerging political power of the era, wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel and even placed Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom, under siege. This prophecy is a prophecy of hope, acknowledging the pain suffered by Israel and Jerusalem and promising that God himself will come to save and comfort his people. And yet, there is no escaping the fact that this passage, along with much of the Old Testament, ascribes not just the hope, but also the preceding evils to the Lord. Why? Well, from the 8th to the 6th centuries BC, the Jewish religion, guided and inspired by the Lord, was solidifying in its monotheism. And the first and most basic tenet of having only one God is that this God is all-powerful and unchallenged, meaning that without now being able to ascribe good and evil, to two different and competing gods, good and evil must both proceed from the same all-powerful God. The one God must be the agent of comfort and the arbiter of punishment. But the Jews also believed, based on their centuries of experience being the chosen people, that this all-powerful God was also a just God. So when bad things began to happen to the Jewish people, they believed that these bad things must come from God and that they they must be an expression of justice. In other words, that everything bad must be a punishment from God for their sins. And yet, when good things began to happen again, this also must be from God. You can see how this problem would lead to the descriptions of God seemingly changing his mind. As the Jewish religion continued to develop, this problem of evil and divine agency never really went away. The Gospels show that even at the time of Jesus, the belief remained that disease or disability was God's punishment for personal sin. So when the Jewish religion was fulfilled and perfected with the coming of Jesus Christ, and God's deepest identity was shown to be love, how did Christianity solve this problem? How can the all-powerful God, who is love, still simultaneously be both comforter and punisher? The answer came in the distinction between God's active will and his permissive will. God is all-powerful, meaning that everything that happens in creation must be approved by him in some way. For all that is good, like existence, life, reason, and grace, we say that God actively wills these things. He expresses his identity of love and by eternally and actively creating and sustaining all that is good. Evil, on the other hand, is never willed, desired, or created by God. He merely permits it. We, corrupted and fallen creation that we are, are the source of all evil. God allows the consequences of our evil actions to persist as a way to preserve the greater good of rationality and free will. And because he knows he can always bring a greater good from these evils. A God who actively creates the good, but only passively allows the evil, according to Christianity, can still be a God of love. Still, this argument feels legalistic and incomplete. Maybe this argument helps a theologian sleep at night, but shouldn't a God of love actively work against evil rather than allow it to continue? Well, yes, of course he should. But God actively works against evil not by shielding us from the consequences of our sins, but instead by allowing us to experience these consequences. In other words, God shows his great and infinite love for us by continually bringing us to repentance. God must allow us to see the evil we have wrought, so that we will turn away from that evil and be converted. Only when we are horrified by the evils of the world are we ready to receive the infinite goodness of God. Only when we have removed sin from our hearts can our hearts be turned to love. Only when their entire world was collapsing around them did the Jews of Isaiah's time understand how necessary it was for them to turn and remain faithful to the Lord. It is not that the Lord repented of his actions and changed his mind. It is that the Jews, through their own repentance, were finally ready to receive the deeper, comforting gifts of the Lord. This is why St. John the Baptist had to come before Jesus, and why the baptism with water had to come before the baptism with the Holy Spirit, This is why a period of tribulation must precede a period of restoration. Why the heavens must be dissolved in flames and the elements melted by fire before we can receive a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is why Advent must come before Christmas. My brothers and sisters in Christ, repent and then believe in the gospel. Look upon your sins with the horror and disgust that they merit. Allow God to destroy your kingdom and besiege your city. Only after he has broken down your walls, only after he has forced you to confront and make expiation for your wrongdoings, only after the evils and corruptions of your life have been laid bare for you to see, Only then can you receive the overwhelming, healing, restoring love of God. We will all, at some point, be forced to repent for our sins. Better to do it now, when God can still comfort us afterward, than to be caught unaware when the Lord returns like a thief in the night.